Sometimes shame can be like shackles around our wrists or our feet just keeping us in place. And we all kind of know what that feels like. We don't know what it feels like to be a top 50 scientist in the world probably, but you know what it feels like to be ashamed and shackled by that shame. Because we've all felt shame. And we get ashamed of what we've done or what we believe for different reasons. Sometimes we're, we're ashamed of something because we knew it was immoral, or we knew that it was wrong. But sometimes we're just ashamed because it's foolish. It makes us look foolish. It embarrasses us to own up to something. And so we get ashamed of it. And the result of shame in any human is pretty much always the same. Usually shame results in us acting like something that happened didn't really happen or pretending like something we believe we don't really believe in certain settings or when we are outed in a way, um, our first reaction is to apologize. That's how you know you're ashamed of something. The, the, the book of the Bible we're going to be talking about for the next 10 weeks was written by a man who had a lot to be ashamed of. He had many reasons to be ashamed. He himself admitted that the gospel he represented was a scandal to the wider culture. It was foolishness to the people that heard it. And so he had every reason to be ashamed. Not only that, he had every reason to be ashamed of his past. As we're going to learn today, he made some egregious mistakes. He did some awful things in his past. And so he had every reason to be ashamed, to be shackled in fear because of his shame. And yet, as we'll see today, he was not ashamed. He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, as we call him, he's also called Saul in the Bible, same guy. Saul was his Hebrew name and Paul was his Greek or Gentile name. He wrote nearly half of the New Testament. And among those 13 letters that he wrote that became uh, New Testament canon is this book called Romans that we're gonna talk about for the next 10 weeks here in worship and also in our discipleship groups uh, sort of coinciding those two together. Now, I happen to believe that Paul uh, was probably uh, the second most influential person in human history. Now, I know it's a little bit of a stretch and maybe I'm biased because of my line of work. Uh, Time Magazine does not agree with me. Time Magazine has Paul somewhere in the mid-30s in terms of the list of top you know, 50 influential people in history, like 34, I think, right behind Thomas Jefferson. Um, and so I just think Time Magazine might be lacking some perspective to put the Apostle Paul behind the third president of the United States. Like, Thomas Jefferson's great and all. Like, he kind of wrote his own Bible, too, if you know any Jeffersonian history. But the Apostle Paul, I think, is no question. He's impacted and influenced life as we know it um, more than Thomas Jefferson, to be sure. And I think more than everyone else except Jesus. Time Magazine also doesn't have Jesus number one, by the way, which is also interesting, but I'm not bitter. So, <laughs> so I think Paul's probably um, number two in, on that list of influential people. And we're going to be studying his most influential work, his most influential writing, the book of Romans. Now this book, Romans, is probably the most important book in the whole Bible, Basically, not to overstate this, but basically if you just had Romans and nothing else, you'd still have enough information to come to salvation in Christ. If all you had was Romans. Now you might be able to say the same thing about you know, the Gospel of John, probably. 
But Romans really fleshes out all the theology, all the stuff going on in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and connects it back to the Old Testament in a way that any individual gospel doesn't. Romans has impacted some of the most impactful Christians who came to faith in Jesus and then changed the world in his name. St. Augustine, for example, credits uh, the passage we're going to read next week about Paul's dealing with human depravity and human sin of convicting his own soul and bringing him to Christ and humbling him so that he could surrender to Christ. Uh, John Calvin, the great reformer, called Romans the perfect gospel. Martin Luther, who was deep in his own doubt, deep in his own depravity, came across Paul's teachings in Romans for himself for the first time and really just bathed in them for a while. And he realized that the whole point of it all wasn't just an extension of other religions. It wasn't just another religion in the world. But the whole point of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was this thing called grace And that this is not salvation by identity or salvation by nationality or salvation by ethnicity or salvation by church membership. This is salvation by grace through faith. And this is a revolution. Y'all have heard guys like me stand on stages like this and say words like that your whole life. They go in one ear, out the other. I need you to hear today how revolutionary the gospel was and is. It certainly was for Luther who changed the world in his own right. His 95 theses and led the Reformation. His writings about Romans were so profound that John Wesley came along a little bit later and read what Luther wrote about Romans, and Wesley was saved in second-degree fashion. Like, Luther was so moved that he wrote some stuff about Romans. Wesley didn't even have to go to Romans. Wesley read Luther about Romans and was saved, and then Wesley changed the Western world as we know it. Some of y'all may not know that how impactful John Wesley was in the Western world. You can read up on it, just Wikipedia. You can always trust Wikipedia. So, um, so you have all these influential people, men and women too, I could go on and make a list, who have credited Romans um, with this uh, revolution of their souls. So I, I think if you're a skeptic and you're an agnostic, I'm, I'm really, really excited about you being here for this. First of all, that's the mission of this church is to inspire non-religious Houstonians to follow Jesus. And so you're our target audience. I mean, not to make you uncomfortable, but (laughs) all these Christians I could care less about. It's you, you know what I mean? So there's some truth in that. So so if you got questions and doubts, I just, I wanna invite you as unassumingly as I can just to lean in a little bit with this series to the book of Romans. I think you might find some challenges to the assumptions you've made about truth and what's true in this letter that this man Paul wrote in 57 or 58 AD. There's three questions I wanna ask about Romans today and we'll kick these around. The first two, frankly, rather boring. So y'all just shake your heads or take another swig of coffee and grind it out with me here because we've got to lay some foundation. The third question, we'll get to the real heart of the matter. The first question I think is important to ask is who is Paul? Who was this guy? Why does he matter to life in 2018 in Houston, Texas, to people like us? Well, I think Paul matters on many levels. I think uh, most of all he matters to people like us because Paul is way more relatable to us than Jesus was. Like 
basically, as I tell you who Paul was, you're going to find yourself probably in his story. Not, not the whole story, but a lot of it. So Paul um, was a first century Jew, right? So he was born into a Jewish family. Uh, we know this from biblical sources and other non-biblical sources have affirmed this. He was probably born in the year 6 AD in the city of Tarsus in the province, the Roman province of Cilicia. So Tarsus is a well-known town. Um, the previous century, Tarsus was the largest city in the world, they think. And uh, by this time that Paul is living, uh, Rome has outgrown Tarsus. But Tarsus was known for two things. It was known for its scenery, scenic views. It had mountains everywhere. It was beautiful. And if you read Paul's writings, you'll see some of the appreciation for the beauty and grandeur of God's creation come through. Sometimes it helps when you read somebody's works, you know a little bit about their background. And Paul was steeped in the beauty of God's creation. He wasn't Born and raised in, you know, Pasadena or somewhere, like Texas, right? So he was born, like, in a beautiful place. <laughs> Sorry. So that was mean. But uh, I, could have said, I could have said a lot of places. Uh, but there's mountains everywhere and just glory and wonder. The other thing that Cilicia, or uh, Tarsus, was known for was uh, athletics, sports. There was always uh, the Greek games going on or training for the Greek games. The best world, the athletes in the world would converge every few years and compete against each other. And if you read Paul, if you're familiar with Paul, you know he was big on sports analogies. So he's like a Bible belt preacher, you know, quarterbacks and linebackers kind of thing. Like he was always talking about, if he was in Texas, football. But he talked about running the good race and fighting the good fight and running with perseverance and those kinds of things because he grew up around sports. There's other things that we know about Paul. We know that Paul uh, was an overachiever, and this is where he starts to hit home for a lot of Houstonians. He worked very hard to succeed. He worked very hard to advance beyond those his same age, and I've never seen people play the comparison game quite like I've seen Houstonians play the comparison game, and so he was keen on that too. He says it in Galatians 1.14, I advanced beyond many people of the same age. And what he means by that is from, a, from his childhood, he hit the books. He worked harder than others. He rose higher than others. Paul became a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were not an ethnic group. Pharisees were, was like a, it was almost like a fraternity, but a smart fraternity, <laughs> to qualify that a little bit. So it, wasn't, uh, it, was, it was about the smartest sort of eagle scouts in Paul's culture that rose up, that hit the books a little harder, that knew a little bit more. And so they were middle-class kids. Pharisees, they get a bad rap from people like me who say, don't be a Pharisee, you know. But really, Pharisees weren't that bad. They were the working-class kids that just outworked everybody else, right? The Sadducees and the Levites were the priestly class looking down their noses at everybody else. The Pharisees kind of, they worked for it. They earned it. And Paul was one of them. Let me tell you how they earned it. Part of the initiation ritual was you had to memorize the Psalms. Not a psalm. The Psalms. 150 of them. The biggest book in the Bible. When I was a kid, they used to bring us forward for the children's sermon. And if we memorized one verse of one psalm, we got a piece of candy, a dum-dum or something, and then they sent us back. And I used to rack my brain to memorize one verse of one psalm. 150 psalms they had to memorize to be a Pharisee. Not only that, they also had to memorize Leviticus and Deuteronomy, by the way, which I'm sure was a lot of fun. Now you know why Paul was single. Uh, <laughs> 
A lot of parties or dates in Paul's life, I don't think. He was home studying Leviticus and, uh, and memorizing uh, all of that. And so Paul was ambitious. He was upwardly mobile in his, in his own way. And that was his whole life, you know. He, he lived for this and he found his identity in it. His mom and dad were proud of him for being a Pharisee. Back then, Pharisee wasn't a bad word. It was a proud thing to be. Now, that's not all we know about Paul. We know that because he was ambitious, we know that because he was upwardly mobile and he was basically willing to do anything to reach the next step in his career, Houston, (laughs) he ended up being a hunter of Christians, a persecutor of Christians. So this is uh, from Acts chapter 7. It's an example of, of the kind of stuff that he agreed to do to advance his career. He says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. And when Stephen had said this, he fell asleep, or he died. And Saul, or Paul, approved of, killing, of their killing him. Um, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul, or Paul, began to destroy the church, going from house to house. Paul, the apostle Paul, dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So This is kind of the dark side of ambition. We can find ourselves doing things that are shameful. This was Paul's reality, and there were reasons that he did it. I understand there were good reasons to to say yes to whatever your bosses or your superiors said to do. But he had to deal with this for the rest of his life. And there's really no good reason for him to have owned this story after his conversion, but he kept talking about how he was the chief of, among sinners. He was the worst one even after his conversion to Jesus. It only makes sense in light of what we're gonna spend the rest of our time talking about today. Finally, uh, Paul did not remain a persecutor of Christians forever. He became a convert to Christianity. And two chapters later in Acts chapter 9, um, this is what happens. So uh, meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So he's still persecuting them. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Now, these are not nice letters, by the way. This is not like, hey, let's write some letters to our friends. You know, like, these were subpoenas. These were warrants. So that he, if he found any among them who betrayed, or, or sorry, who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he reached Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground, and the voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. (laughs) A little funny story. I didn't say this at the other services. But right after this, Paul starts just showing up at the churches like, hey, guys. (laughs) <laughs> and they, they were like dead bolting the door and you know like I don't think he's one of us you know like uh, it, so it took him a while to warm up to him actually and I'm not sure uh, they uh, some of them ever forgave him for killing uh, so many of their own um, brothers and sisters so Paul uh, had much to be ashamed of alright what happened after this It's fascinating. So if you can imagine this, Paul spent the first 30 years of his life doing one thing. 
and getting pats on the back for doing that one thing. His whole life was about this one career path. And then one thing happens, one event, one day, and changes everything. So Paul doesn't do any of this stuff anymore. The second half of his life, the next 30 years of his life, he spends doing something completely different. Some of y'all are, are right about there. Like you're about, if all goes well, you're about halfway through uh, this life, right? So maybe you've spent, I just turned 40, by the way. So I'm kind of there too. So this week I turned 40, I'm still grieving. So the first half of your life is one way. And then maybe there's something else waiting for you on the other side of that. On the, the second half of your life, maybe it's going to be about something completely different. Maybe one day, one experience, one revelation is going to change everything for you. It did for Paul. After this, uh, after that day, that experience with Jesus on the road, he spent the next 30 years traveling over 10,000 miles on foot to plant over a dozen churches at least and write at least 13 letters that make up half the New Testament and uh, is largely responsible for the spread of Christianity beyond temple Judaism uh, to the Gentiles, to the whole world. It's a fascinating story to think about. If you are a skeptic or a cynic, I just want you to honestly wrestle with the question, what you believe took place in this man's life? Why would an upwardly mobile, successful man who had it all give it away and spend the second half of his life being imprisoned and beaten and shipwrecked and treated like an animal, eventually martyred as he's being laughed at? Why? If it's not true, then what is it? So keep wrestling with that, my skeptical, cynical friends here today. The second question I want to ask is, who were these Roman Christians? And this sounds like a boring question uh, for most people. I'm a dork, and so I really am fascinated by this. I think it's an amazing thing to think about, that this is just 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So that happens mid-30s. A.D., first century, and Paul writes his letter mid-50s A.D. And, and so somehow in those 20 years' time between the, the death of Jesus and uh, Paul writing Romans, somehow there have become these thriving churches. It's more likely that there were multiple churches meeting throughout the city of Rome in sort of a network kind of a way. How did that happen without the benefit of the Internet? Without email, you know, without websites, without even cars and stuff. Like how does the gospel travel 2,500 miles from Nazareth, population 400, to Rome, the largest city in the world? How does a, a, a movement that is so clearly anti-Rome, how does a movement that is so clearly treasonous calling some guy Lord, Savior, Son of God, Messiah, when prior to his life, death, and resurrection, all those terms were reserved for one man only. Caesar was Lord. Caesar was Savior. Caesar was Messiah. Caesar was Son of God. How does a movement claiming that some other man is those things take root and find success in Rome? It's really a mystery. Paul didn't start this church. That's why Romans is so long compared to the other letters. He's introducing himself. He's saying the things in Romans that he said to all the other churches to their faces. That's why Romans is longer. Right? So he didn't start the church. 
Tradition used to say Peter started the church. There's no evidence to suggest that Peter actually started the church in Rome. So who did? We don't know. There's only one biblical shred of evidence about where the Christians in Rome came from. And it comes from Acts chapter 2. At the birthday of the church on Pentecost, 50 days after the death of Jesus, there were in Jerusalem, when the Holy Spirit moved and the church was born, there were visitors from Rome there. Visitors from Rome both Jews and converts to the Jewish faith. These visitors from Rome may have been the ones that carried religion or the, the Christian faith back to Rome. Whatever the case, it's still amazing that this movement thrived. It's amazing, y'all, because it was not easy to be Christian and Roman. And I know that many people today talk about how it's no longer easy to be a Christian in America and there's persecutions and stuff like that. Listen, we, we've not seen any of it yet, right? So, and, and as it comes, as persecutions come and the harder that it gets to proclaim your faith in the culture around you, just know that's when the gospel of Jesus is at its best. And so you welcome every challenge you welcome every person. Well, they don't let me pray in a school no more. Welcome it. Y'all like, it's okay. That's when Christianity, you, you want to know when Christianity is at its very worst is when it's mainstream. Right? When, when this is a Christian nation, y'all, I don't want Washington dictating my Christian faith. That doesn't work out well for anyone. Right? Christianity is always at its best from the bottom up. The same was true in Rome. It was not easy to be a Roman Christian. It was uh, very, in a very real way, it was torture. Y'all have heard the stories of Christians being fed to hungry lions for sport in the Colosseum. That's true. It's, it's been, you know, it's, it's been documented outside of the Bible even. There was a Roman historian named Tacitus who accused the Christians of being uh, uh, superstitious, but uh, he, he accused them of being mischievous in their superstition. He said we need to eradicate Christians and Caesar sought to eradicate Christians because of their hatred for humankind. There were Christians, uh, there were rumors about the Christians in the first century in Rome that Christians were cannibals. And this is documented outside the Bible as well. Christians were cannibals because every time they get together they talk about eating some guy. <laughs> so after, this, after the sermon, somebody gets up and breaks some bread and says, this is some dude's body, eat it. And uh, they call us cannibals. And then they call us incestuous because I heard this Christian once say that his wife was his sister. You know, like, because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. They said we're incestuous and, and they said we're foolish. They said our faith is a scandal. They said that Mary... Shacked up with some Roman soldier, and that's how Jesus was born. All kinds of rumors, all kinds of false narratives, and they paid the price for standing up to their fa- for their faith. So in addition to being fed to hungry lions in the Colosseum, Christians were at times set on fire as human torches to light the imperial gardens, if you can imagine. Whoever these Roman Christians were, they were courageous and their story should be told. Third and finally, why did Paul write this letter? 
I've already shared that he was introducing himself. I've uh, shared some of the logistics around this, the reasons for this letter. One reason Paul wrote this letter is because he wanted to go to Spain, which I mean, who doesn't? He's uh, so relatable, this Paul, like we all want to go to Spain. Uh, Paul wanted to go there to share the, the gospel, and, and Rome was halfway. So he wanted to shack up in Rome for a while, maybe get some money in his pocket and head out. And we don't know if he ever made it to Spain. We just know by the second century, Spain was full of Christians. So somewhat likely that Paul made it to Spain in the early 60s. But the most important reason Paul wrote this letter, this most important letter in the most important book that's ever been written, is spelled out in two verses. And these verses uh, comprise sort of the thesis statement of Paul's letter to the Romans. And if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do with you, your Bible app, that's okay too. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 form the thesis that we're going to keep coming back to in the next couple of months in the book of Romans. It's on your study guides as well. If you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine. Um, just bring one next week or grab one in our lobby. We've got free ones out there you can take home with you. This is what Paul says. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And the reason he says that is, is chronological. It's not preferential on God's part, right? Salvation came to the whole world through the Jewish people. So for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. By faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So it's fascinating to me that Paul begins this treatise uh, or this thesis of his letter to the Romans with the words, for I am not ashamed. Because the only reason, the only time you would ever use that language is if the thing you're about to say would be called shameful by most of the people that you know. Right? So the only way you would use the words, I'm not ashamed, is if you're about to say something that the people around you would go, well, you should be. You know, like, like if, I, if I would, as an example, like I've seen every Twilight movie multiple times. I'm not ashamed. I don't care what you think. I'm a good husband. Right? It's not for me, it's for her. Right? So I'm not ashamed, but some of y'all are thinking, well, you should be. Right? And another example to get my man card back is if I'm flipping channels and uh, MMA is on, I'm going to stop and watch. I'm a man of the cloth. I'm supposed to be about, about nonviolence, you know. But I don't know. If some dudes are beating the mess out of each other on my TV, I'm going to stop and watch because I kind of like it. I'm not ashamed. I don't care what you think. I'm okay with it. So if I, if I had a choice between two meals, to have one meal for the rest of my life, and y'all gave me two choices, on the one hand it was Whataburger, on the other hand there was In-N-Out Burger, I'd choose In-N-Out Burger every time, every time, because it's a better burger. I'm not ashamed. I don't care what you think. They put Bible verses on the wrappers. Of course I'm going to choose In-N-Out Burger. All right. And y'all are judging me now. That's okay. All I'm saying is the only reason somebody says I'm not ashamed is if 
they're about to say something shameful in the eyes of those around them. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed because in the eyes of most in the Roman culture, the gospel was a shameful thing. The gospel was a shameful thing, a mischievous superstition. Christians, the first thing they said about Christians was that they're drunks and gluttons. So Paul wrote this letter to the Romans to remind the Christians living under persecution there that there's nothing to be ashamed of. And this is important for you today. Not just in the 50s AD. This is important for you today. Why? Because you've been raised in a culture, even if you've been raised Christian, you've been raised to believe that there are certain things about your religious convictions of which you should be ashamed. And you've gone off to college or you've been in circles of friends or you've just been online and, and you've been made to feel that if you own your Christian faith, if you're outed as a Christian, then your first reaction must be an apology. Because the religion of Christianity has been guilty of awful travesties and tragedies. And, and the Bible says some really questionable things. And all Christians hate this group of people or that group of people. And, and not everybody's welcome in the church, you know. And, and so you've been made to feel like you want to keep your faith private, packed away like your Sunday best. You put it on on Sunday morning, you go to church, you go home and take it off again. And you've been taught that if you're outed in a social setting as a Christian, you're supposed to blush and get sheepish and apologize because you've been led to believe that there is much about which you should feel ashamed. And the problem is that you've all, we've all been led to believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the religion of Christianity are one and the same. And we've been led to conflate the two. Listen, it's true. There's plenty in the history of Christian men and women to be ashamed of. There's plenty of ways, instances historically, in which the Bible has been misused to objectify and, and, and oppress others. It's true. Religion can be an awful, awful thing. But do you know what else is true? The gospel is not religion. It is not just another religion. It never was meant to be another religion. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Listen, it's not like a religion in that it is bound by your works. It's not about your works. It's not about your righteousness. Religion is... Religion is about how good you can be. It's about what a good little boy or girl you can be, and you get your reward. You get a cookie or you get a slap on the wrist if you've been bad. That is not the gospel. It's not about your righteousness. Paul says it is about the righteousness of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus paying the price for all the stuff you're ashamed of with his own blood, the blood of God, the most sacred substance imaginable on earth poured out for you. Because he is righteous even when we are not. See, gospel is not religion. It's not bound by ethnicity or nationality or the language you speak or what color your skin is. It is a universal truth, universally available to all God's people. It is God's arms wide open saying, come to me. 
regardless of what you've done, where you were born, when you were born, what you look like, what language you speak. It's so much better than what you've heard. And if you're a skeptic, if you're just not sure about guys like me, I wouldn't trust me either. And I'm not asking you to trust me. It's not about me. I'm just a mouthpiece for a minute. From this point on, it's about you and your creator and the relationship between you. And you can shy away from it by saying, I just can't imagine aligning with all those Christians that I've always made fun of my whole life or I've voted against them or I've said I hate them or they're just the worst. It's fine if you want to be bound, you know, if you want to bind the most important decision you'll probably ever make based on some, you know, the ick factor. Like, that's fine. I did it too. I didn't want to be associated with Christians for the first half of my life. I only want to go to heaven if everybody else was there. Like, if the Christians were there, I don't want to go there. I get it. This is not about Christians. It's not about you or your righteousness or what you've done. This is simply about what's true. Either you were created by a God who loves you, who created you for a purpose and brought you here to hear these words, preordained this whole thing so that your heart would be stirred, so that you would finally, once and for all, surrender to his love for you and his life that he wants to give you. Or it's all a game. Nothing really matters or means anything and nothing's really true. You can weigh the evidence and think back to all the events that have brought you here And you can chalk them all up to randomness. Or in this moment, right now, everything can change. And everything you've been living for can be in your past. Because there's something so much better you can live for. Starting now. I pray you'll say yes. That's all you have to do. Is to say it's okay, I believe. And then let the Holy Spirit fill you and take it from there. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the promise of your gospel that is your power revealed to us for the salvation of everyone who believes. God, we thank you for your grace that is so much greater than religion or any other worldview this world has to offer. I pray for hard heads and arrogant hearts to be broken today so that we in our stubbornness would finally let go and be free and found alive in you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.